Well, I want to welcome you to Alliance this morning, and it may be that you're here this morning as a visitor, and you're going, well, that's not exactly like my church. You see, we all have our ideas about how church should look. We all have certain expectations when we gather, whether on Sunday mornings or uh, during Sunday school or the Sunday evening service, or for that matter, whether we meet on Saturday or, or Sunday. And, and when, we, when we meet, whether we stand, sit, or kneel, whether we sing, recite, or read, whether the songs are hymns or choruses, or like ours this morning, a little bit of both, whether we use instruments or not, and there are those who fight about that, and if we do, which ones to use and which ones not to use, whether we pray aloud or silently or all together led by one, whether we observe communion every week, once a month, or once a year, whether the talk by the minister is a short homily, don't get your hopes up, or an evangelistic appeal, as many do, or a thorough study of Scripture. And you should understand that many of these expectations that we bring come with a history. It's the way that we, we've always done it, or it's the way with which we're most accustomed or, or a way with which we're most comfortable. And if we're not careful, those very comfortable expectations may become the standard by which we measure the rightness or wrongness of a particular gathering. From where did those expectations, though, come? C- certainly from our previous experiences, but hey, where did mom and dad get them? Where did grandma and grandpa get them? You see, our church practices have developed over time. Some church traditions even have what they call the the, the book of church order or something similar. I googled it, came up with 120 million hits. A quick count demonstrated that the Presbyterians really like that. That that book tells them when to stand, when to kneel, what to say, what the minister should wear, and where the communion table should be placed. They used to fight about that. You see, all of those carry a certain significance in the past. The study of church history is fascinating. Through such a course, we discover why we are who we are today why we think the way we do, why we act the way we do, why we do the things that we do, why we even believe the way that we do. Let me give you some examples. The Sunday school was originally started in England by Robert Rakes in 1780. My goodness, what did they do for the first 1800 years of the church? You see, he wanted to give less fortunate children both religious training, and elementary instruction in reading, writing, and basic arithmetic. So how would you like it if you came to Sunday school today and you had to recite your multiplication tables or the parts of speech? You know, that's like verb noun. Um, In Sunday school, you say, well, that's not what Sunday school is for. It isn't. The Sunday evening service was originally started as as an evangelistic gathering. You see, there was this new invention called the incandescent light bulb. Most people didn't have one, so the church ingeniously thought we can start a, an evening service, use the light bulb, and then when non-Christians gather, kind of like a bait and switch, uh, we can preach the gospel. don't know if you've noticed, but today most people don't come to see the light bulb anymore. 
The the midweek service came out of the evangelistic camp meetings of the 1800s, and they've been a staple of American evangelicalism ever since. I mean, God forbid that we should not have a midweek Wednesday night Bible study. Well, what about the very order of our uh, uh, Sunday morning services? Where, Where did that come from? Why do most Protestant churches gather, open in prayer, sing a few songs, take an offering, observe communion, listen to the Word, and then go home? Why would we do that? Well, church history. Most of you are familiar with a, a German monk named Martin Luther who sought to reform the Roman Catholic Church. His position regarding practices when this new Lutheran church met, Lutheran church services, was this. He said, if it isn't expressly forbidden in Scripture, then we're going to keep doing it the way that we've always done it. And that's why, for example, if you go to a Lutheran church today, um, you will observe many things that are similar to a Catholic Mass. Now, there was also another uh, reformer named John Calvin. He was a, a Frenchman who spent most of his years in Geneva, Switzerland. Now, his position regarding practices in the church, church service order, was different from Luther's. He said this, if it isn't expressly commanded in Scripture, then we won't do it. Okay, so you have Luther who said, if it's not forbidden, we're going to keep doing it. You have Calvin who says, if it's not commanded, we're not going to do it. So he changed, well, like everything, uh, realizing that what was done in the church of his time was based on tradition. And far be it from us to do anything based on tradition. And so he came up with his own order of service. It went something like this, open in prayer, sing a few songs, take an offering, observe communion, listen to a sermon, go home. Sound familiar? See, you didn't realize that you're all just a bunch of little Calvinists. Just kidding. (laughs) But let me ask you a question. What made Calvin right? Well, nothing. Why do we have to do it the way that he did it? Well, we don't, but it's become an expectation. Well, you ask, well, what did the early church do? That's a great question. Uh, Did the children of Peter, James, and John go to youth group? Uh, Did did they have an organ or a piano? Did they sing hymns or, or choruses? And hey, did Paul preach as long as Scott? And the answer is no, he preached longer. Once he preached all night, some dude named Eutychus fell out the window, fell out, broke his neck. Paul had to raise him from the dead. <laughs> let, me, let, me, let me start this morning by saying there is a great degree of freedom in the Scripture regarding the form of church gatherings. It doesn't tell us whether to start at 8, 15. We're thankful for that. This is 11 o'clock service or 9 or, or 11. It doesn't give us an order of service, when to take an offering, how many songs to sing, or how long we should be here, although it should be longer. Well, 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 it does have some instructions regarding form. It's more concerned with function. It's more concerned that we know why we gather, what our purpose is, than how we go about accomplishing those purposes. And yet... When Paul wrote his first letter to Timothy, he told him why he was writing in 
First Timothy chapter 3, with, he gives us these very interesting words. I am writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long, Timothy, but in case I am deli- delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. So, while there is a great degree of freedom, Paul does in this book give certain expectations regarding about how we structure ourselves, how we conduct ourselves in the church. It's kind of interesting. He calls the church the household of God. And as, as you look through Paul's letters, he, several times he gives what is called the household, the household code, what are expected of certain members of the household, husband, wife, children. And it's kind of interesting. He has certain expectations of the members of God's household that he spells out for us. And so while we may look a little different than the church down the street, or they may look a little different than us, we better all function in the ways that Paul outlines in this book. Now, we remember that Paul left Timothy in Ephesus to do primarily two things. First, to deal with false teachers, and then secondly, to set the church in order. And I want you to understand that those two things were likely interrelated. You see, the the teaching of these false teachers was likely disrupting the worship gatherings of the church. Those worship gatherings had degenerated into nothing more than debates and, and, and dissensions. For example, look at some of these verses. In chapter 1, we, we read, instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, nor to pay attention to myths or endless genealogies, which give rise to mere speculation. That's what they were doing, rather than furthering the administration of God. For some men, he says, straying from these things, have turned aside to fruitless discussion. That's what was going on there. And further, at the end of chapter 1, we found that these guys had rejected a good conscience, and they'd made a shipwreck of the faith, and they needed to be taught not to to blaspheme. That's what was going on. And, and then in chapter 2 this morning, Paul will encourage men in the church to pray. To pray without um, wrath and dissension. Now, those are kind of interesting words. Why would we pray with wrath and dissension? Because of what was going on within the false teaching in chapter 3. He, he's going to outline the qualifications of elders. Now, now, why does he do that? Because these false teachers came from the eldership And one of those qualifications is, listen, don't be pugnacious. Like that word, it actually means combative. Don't be combative. Seems likely that that's exactly what these false teachers were doing. They were causing fights and controversies in the gathered assembly. In chapter 6, he'll say that they have a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words out of which arise Envy and strife and abusive language and evil suspicions and constant friction between men of depraved mind and deprived of the truth. That's quite the description of what was going on in the church. Abusive language. Nice. And then he'll finish the book by saying, oh, Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you, namely the gospel. Avoid this worldly and empty chatter and this, these opposing Argument. So, can you imagine what those church gatherings look like? Kind of like 
Baptist business meetings, lots of speculation and fruitless discussions and false teaching and blasphemy and arguing and combative dissension and controversies and fights and controversial questions and disputes and envy and strife and abuse of language and name-calling and evil suspicions and constant friction and worldly and empty chatter. Nice. I am sure that those gatherings were quite exciting and altogether worthless. Paul says, this is, how, this is how I want you to order yourselves. We actually started this topic last week at the beginning of chapter 2. I urge that prayers be made on behalf of all people to include those in authority, even those you don't like, even those with, whom, with whose policies you disagree vehemently. Heard about that after? Pray for them so that we can live godly and, and, and quiet lives, so that we can live in an environment in which we can share the, the gospel not only that, pray for their salvation. God, God likes those prayers because He wants everybody to be saved. He desires all to come to a knowledge of the truth. After all, there's only one God, and there's one mediator, there's one gospel, and, and therefore there's only one way for people to be reconciled to God. You see, uh, our God is the God of, of all people, and they need to know Him and His glorious gospel, which brings us to our text in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 and following say this, therefore I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly, stone, uh, costly garments, but rather by means of good works as is proper for a woman making a claim to godliness. So, having called us uh, to prayer in the gathered assembly, this is how I want you to conduct yourselves in the church, Paul now zeroes in on what, are, what, what were likely challenges in the church in Ephesus, and, and frankly, likely challenges that continue to this day. You see, he addresses men and women specifically, and I think that he addresses what is peculiar to their gender. Now, I said, I know, I said gender. I know we live in a world that has totally messed with gender. On the one hand, we have Facebook, which lists some 50 different de genders from which to choose. I don't know. I'm thinking there's like two. <laughs> On the other hand, some want to eliminate gender all, the, all, all together. I mean, we're all the same, maybe just a little different plumbing. Listen, we're going we're gonna to talk about this next week. When God created us in His image, He created us male and female, equally created in the image of God, but different. We're, we're different with different roles and responsibilities and, and different challenges which are specific to our gender. What do I mean? Let me give you some examples. When I say the words prayer warrior, who comes to mind? Right? Likely some mom or some godly woman who you know prays, like a lot. And so you take to her your greatest needs. That's not to say that you don't know some men who pray, you know, like every once in a while, but, but Paul here directs his words to us, men, and he says, men, listen up. 
I want you to pray. And by the way, when you don't be argumentative either. Because men are known, right, to be gentle and non-competitive, right? <laughs> Similarly, when I suggest people should dress modestly, who comes to mind? Likely women who dress either provocatively or extravagantly. Now, I, I know some of you think that sounds sexist. Well, Paul's the one who brings it up. It is not to say that there are not men who need to dress modestly too. Some men dress inappropriately, either seductively or extravagantly, and Paul would say to you, don't do that. In fact, just this week, Michael told me that there were reports coming out that skinny jeans and iPhone 6s don't mix. Well, I would say skinny jeans and men don't mix either. I, I, I know, that's just me. I know I'm old. The point is, Paul address, addresses each gender with some specific instructions regarding the gathered assembly. He's just talked about praying for everyone. And while we're on this topic, he says, men, listen up, men, look at my eyeballs. Pray rightly. Likewise, women, Dress rightly. Telling people all week, here's my sermon. Men pray, women dress right. So we're done. Let's go home. Not quite. Verse 8, to men, therefore, I want the men in every place, that's likely in every place that the church meets, no matter where it is, I want you to pray, lifting holy hands without wrath and dissension. In this verse, Paul covers the place of prayer, the posture of prayer, and the purity of prayer. Look at it with me. First, men, be prayers. That is not to say that women don't pray, all right? First Corinthians eleven five 5 speaks of women praying and even prophesying in the gathered assembly. The problem is, the problem is, men, we too quickly abandon abdicate the responsibility of prayer to the other gender. We just let them do it. They, they, they need to pray too, but men pray in every place. So the place of prayer is everywhere, and he's likely talking about every time we meet. Men lead in prayer. Pray. I mean, come on, let's just be honest. We're doers. We're not very good prayers. Let's pray, men. This leads to the posture of prayer. He says, lifting holy hands. Now, 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 this was the way people often prayed then, lifting or spreading their hands before God. And I had one commentary that said, oh, now, Presbyterians and Episcopalians, they, 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 they kneel. It's only charismatics that lift their hands, Whatever. It is a way of physically demonstrating his otherness, his greatness, and our great dependence. We actually find a, a number of postures of prayer in Scripture, from hands lifted to heads bowed, from standing to kneeling to lying prostrate with faces to the ground, 
Psalm 95 says it this way, come let us worship and bow down, let us kneel before the Lord our maker. So, so which one is it? Do we, do we bow down or do we, do we kneel? I don't think it matters. I don't think Paul is identifying a single posture, but rather he is pointing to the need for prayer. Men, you need to be prayers. He's talking about the attitudes behind our praying, attitudes of humility and reverence and dependence and purity. You see, lifting holy hands reminds us of Psalm 94, where the psalmist asks the question, who may ascend the hill of the Lord, who may stand in His holy place? And he answers, he who has clean hands and a pure heart. So the idea here is men pray with holy hands lifted up, pray with clean hands, pray with a pure heart. In fact, in fact there were at this time pools of water spread throughout the temple mount so that when people came to worship and to pray, they would, they would literally wash their hands. This was a ceremonial act that was supposed to represent a clean heart. So, so here Paul is telling us, pray in purity. And we remember this, this needed to be admonished in Ephesus, where there seemed to be a ton of dissension and fighting and arguing. Don't, don't pray to God with dirty hands, with, sins in, with sin in your heart toward, toward each other. Don't do that. And we remember the words of Jesus in, in Matthew chapter 5 when He said, Therefore, if you are presenting your offer, uh, offering at the altar and, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come present the offering. The point is this, make sure that your heart is right with others before you approach God. Like, hey, it's all okay. Lift holy hands without wrath or anger toward each other, without fighting and bickering and dissension. This is a problem for our gender men. This is a problem. We would, listen, we would rather be right than reconciled. That's wrong. We are critical and sinfully competitive. That is wrong. I've told this story before, but my wife, I did, she'll tell you, we've been married a long time. It didn't matter whether we were playing like crazy eights or tennis or whatever. I'd get like upset and she'd confront me about it. And I'd say, I'd say well, I'm just too competitive. That's not true. I'm just too sinful. God desires that we live in peaceful unity. Men, pray everywhere with good and holy hearts. Secondly, he turns his attention to women. This could be in the context of praying or simply talking about gathering in the church. If, if men are to pray without dissension, women are to pray without ostentation. He says, men... I want you to be holy. I want you to put off what is a problem for you, namely wrath and dissension. Women, likewise, I want you to be holy and to put off what is a problem for you, namely physical dress, ostentatious dress. And I want you to put on what is proper for godly women. So, let's, let's look at this. First, he says, let's talk about this physical appearance thing. How is it appropriate for women to adorn themselves? And that's a rather interesting word in the, 
uh, Greek, it's the word cosmeo, from which we get our word cosmetics. So, so women, how is it that you are supposed to cosmetic yourself? And Paul says, I want you to adorn yourself with proper clothing. The word proper speaks of that which is respectable, respectable. And he goes on to define that as that which is modest and discreet. There are two basic ideas here, two basic ideas which have much to say to our culture. If there are any industries in our culture today which focus on women, it is clothing and hair and jewelry, right? And you've never seen an ugly one pushing it. I would not even venture a guess the marketing dollars that are thrown at women in these areas and the amount of money that women spend on clothes and hair and jewelry. Such, listen to me, such a focus frankly encourages vanity and inordinate self-focus. And this was and frankly is a problem. One ancient sculpture from about this time uh, shows a, a, a wealthy lady with four, count them, four attendants pampering her, fixing her hair. You thought it was bad to go sit in the chair for an hour and a half with one. The issue here is self-indulgence and self-focus, and it lacks the humility that God expects of His daughters. Now, when we hear the word modest, it could speak of that which is not extravagant, and Paul may have that in mind, but I think he does with the word discreet, which speaks of self-control. He goes on to spell that out, not with costly garments. We'll get to that. But the idea of modest here, very clear, carries sexual undertones. Ladies, I want you to dress modestly, not suggestively, not sexually, not provocatively, not seductively, not drawing attention to yourselves in an inappropriate sexual way. As Paul wrote this, you need to understand that to, to dress provocatively was tantamount to unfaithfulness. If you dress that way, it would mark it down, you were unfaithful. And I know you can't believe that I'm talking about this. I mean, it sounds so legalistic and so old-fashioned and so outdated, yet here it is right in the text. And you actually know that I'm talking about it because there is still a need for the discussion today. Ladies, when you dress provocatively, I want you to consider the following three things. First, you are sinning by revealing yourself. Second, you are enticing men to sin by lusting. And third, and I had not thought of this, this was amazing as I looked at this, when you dress in such a way as to garner attention, who is it that you are competing with in the church anyway? Who is it that we are supposed to focus on when we gather? And you are dressing in such a way as to draw attention away from Him. Do you really want to compete with God in that way? One said it this way, a woman comes to church to meet God, not men. And if we seek 
excuse me, if you seek focus from men, then you are drawing their attention away from God. So, what then is immodest dress? Anybody want to take over? (laughs) It is any dress that accentuates and draws attention to your sexuality. Dress modestly. Don't wear revealing clothing, either too tight, too low, or too high. And I'll leave it at that. Not only that, he says, dress discreetly. That is, so as not to draw attention to yourselves. And I know that that is what our culture tells you to do. I know that since you were a little girl, that's all you've been taught is how to dress in such a way that everybody thinks you're cute, not everybody thinks you're good looking. It's all about drawing attention to yourself. This seems so contrary, so out of line with our culture. Here's the question. Is the Bible out of line with culture or is the church out of line with the Bible? Paul goes on to give some examples. These are not, listen to me very carefully, these are not meant to be absolutes. But they were then and are now problems. He says, don't dress with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments. So, does this then rule out all braiding of hair? I mean, are you even allowed to, like, brush it? (laughs) Does it rule out jewelry and all clothing except that which is on the clearance rack or the thrift store? I don't. I don't think so. He is not saying dress out of style, but he's saying don't dress with an inordinate self-focus with the intention of drawing undue focus to yourself. It is not about you. I don't care what our culture tells you. And I don't care what men in the church have told you. He was addressing the way women then spent hours on their hair, hours. It was just amazing. Uh, Again, there are statues and drawings, engravings, even coins that display this particular practice. They would pile their hair up high, think like the 60s, uh, for all to see. But they would put in that piled up hair gems and pearls and gold. And it was meant to be, listen to this, it was meant to be a symbol of wealth. They were walking into the gathered assembly, and they were wanting to say, I want everybody to know how wealthy I am. In fact, I want everybody to know that I am more wealthy than you. And that has no place in the gathered assembly where we are with brothers and sisters in Christ. We are not competing with the latest and most expensive fashions. This lacks propriety, and it lacks humility. Instead, he says... Just like I want men to lift holy hands and put aside wrath and dissension, I want women to put aside these elaborate and ornate selfish displays which only draw attention to yourselves. Instead, I want you to, this is really good, I want you to put on good works as is proper for women making a claim of godliness. He's actually saying this, ladies, you want to be beautiful? Then adorn yourself with good works. This is proper for women who claim to be godly. By the way, men, I know you've gone to sleep here the last few minutes. Wake up. This is exactly what godly men should be drawn to. Good works, not good looks. 
We do not help when we are drawn only to external beauty as our culture defines beauty. We have made women slaves of their external appearance. And we need to stop. And we should value that which God values, and we should define beauty the way God defines beauty. You go, well, how's that? Got an answer. Peter tells us in 1 Peter chapter 3. Ladies, your adornment, your cosmetics must not be merely external. It's actually italicized in the Greek, I mean in the English, which means it's not in the Greek. It should not be external, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry or putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart. Look how the focus is on that which is internal rather than that which is external. With the imperish, I love those words, imperishable quality. You understand all that focus you're putting on yourselves? You understand it's going to get old. It's perishable. So focus on this imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. That is what God thinks is beautiful. You know what? I have a theory. Last couple of weeks, I've been, I've been telling everybody, man, you can't believe what i got to preach in the next couple of weeks. I've been reading them the text, and all the guys that read the text of the men, and they go, oh, dude, I wouldn't want to have to do that. And then I read it to the women, they go, yeah. Here's my theory I think that godly women are sick and tired of being judged by their external appearance and would rather to be judged by their inner godliness that expresses itself in good works. We have heard that beauty is only skin deep. The truth is, the truth is that God turns that completely on its head. He turns it inside out. We look at the external. He looks at the internal. Every commentary said it, so I will say it. Ladies or men, do you spend as much time pursuing good works as you do pursuing good looks? Now, what are the good works a woman should try to devote herself to? Well, I'm already in trouble. Might as well keep going. Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 5, where he's talking about this list of widows that we're going to eventually get to, he says, there, put a widow on the list if she has a reputation for good works. And then he goes on to kind of explain that. If she has brought up children, if she's had children, if she has brought them up, like what we talked about this morning during our child dedication, right? We want to bring them up in a godly way. If she has shown hospitality to strangers, hospitality is this idea of having strangers into your home for the purpose of feeding and clothing them. If she has washed the saints' feet, now there's a menial task for you, and if she has assisted those in distress, she's cared for people who are hurting, and if she has devoted herself to every good work, in this case, I missed any. So here's what I want you to see. A woman with a reputation of good works gives herself to care for others, not to care for her external appearance. A woman, listen to me, ladies, a woman is beautiful not by what she wears, but by what she does. A woman is beautiful not by what she wears, but by what she does. And if you have been, not if, and I know that you have been told just the opposite of that, 
even by people sitting in this room. And I am sorry. And I want you to know what God sees as beautiful. And I want us to see the same thing. So let me wrap this up. Gathered assembly is not for fighting or arguing or dissension, wrath, fruitless discussion, speculations, but rather a good and godly pursuit of the things of Christ. The church gathered is for prayer. So men, listen to me. Stop abdicating your responsibility. I want you to pray. Women, likewise, stop focusing on the externals and focus on the internal qualities of godliness. Do good works because it is there that true beauty lies. Stand for prayer. Father, the Scripture is full of teaching and commands for Your people to be counter-cultural. But the truth is, we want desperately to look like everybody around us. And so, would You forgive us for that sinful pursuit would, would you help us to, even when the Bible seems backward and outdated and countercultural, would you, would you help us to pursue that which you see as beautiful and good and godly? Would you help men to lead, lead in prayer? Would you help women to pursue not good looks but good works? And would you help men to value that? Would you help us, even as Scott reminded us this morning. We want to be fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. We pray this in His name. Amen.